Welcome everyone to another episode of Where's This Going? Before we get into it today, I want to please remind you to follow me on Instagram at felix.levine if you haven't done so already, as well as my YouTube channel that you can find by searching my name, Felix Levine, on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to that, and there you'll be able to find every episode in its full video version, as well as smaller clips and highlights from those episodes. I also want to urge you, if you haven't done so already, to take a quick second, if you're listening on Apple's podcast app, to rate and review the show five stars. That would mean a lot. And my next guest, he is my absolute favorite author, and his first hit book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, sold over 12 million copies to date. Please welcome the charismatic and talented Mark Manson. And we're live. Mark, thank you uh, so much for taking the time today. It really does mean a lot for you to uh, come on my show. It's good to be here, man. My pleasure. So there's one thing that I was I wanted to start off really quickly, actually. Um, you are a Boston University alum. That is yeah. correct. I am currently a Boston University student. So when I saw that, I was quite excited. Oh, wow. Go, go Terriers. Go ter- <laughs> did, you, did, you, uh, did you enjoy your, your Boston University experience? I loved it. I didn't want to leave. <laughs> you graduated <laughs> in 2007, right? 2007, yeah. Wow. So there's so much that I want to get into. I have obviously I've got the subtle art right here. I've got I so I read the subtle art and I didn't and I purposely did not read everything as fucked because I wanted to talk to you first before I did that. Um okay. for the people out there that uh have perhaps re- are in the same position as me, have perhaps read the subtle art but have not read everything is fucked. Why, sh- why should we read Everything is Fucked? And how is it, you know, different than The Subtle Art? Everything is Fucked is, it's not a sequel. It's more, it, it's like a deeper analysis of the concepts in Subtle Art. You know, the, the analogy that I used when it came out was, it's like the calculus to Subtle Art's algebra. Mm. So it's not, it's not that it's covering new territory. It's just taking the concepts of Subtle Art and applying them to deeper and broader topics you know um so it, it you know there i reference a lot in subtle art um social media and and how everybody's anxious because everybody's always worrying about how they're being portrayed or how they're they're appearing um and so everything is fucked actually looks at like okay what what sort of implications does that have for us as a as a society as a community um how does that affect how we identify with groups or how we identify with each other um so yeah it just it goes into a bit more depth did you feel a certain pressure after the obviously overwhelming success of subtle art um when writing everything is fucked that you know it perhaps would not live up to to the standards that were you know i mean you set the bar incredibly high with with subtle art yeah (laughs) i mean it's anytime so subtle art is sold over 12 million copies and and I, I always put that in the context, like that's like in the publishing world, that's like Avengers level shit. And um, it, it it's not, you're never gonna hit that mark again. You know, as an author, you, you're lucky if you hit it once in your career. Um, so, I mean, that realization in and of itself kind of messed with my head going into the next book. And I think, if, if that was it, if it was just me in an empty room having to kind of like sort it out myself in my brain, I think it, I, I might have been able to kind of get a handle on it. Um, the problem is, too, is that there's so much external pressure that starts happening to you. So suddenly uh, the publisher has all these expectations. The contracts get much, much bigger. Your agent starts calling more often. There's all these people want to talk to you about tv shows and movies and documentaries and this person wants to work with you and that person wants to work with you and it it becomes very very difficult to say no and to also uh not let that affect you you know it's coming like 
coming out of the gates with so much success with my first book, there was definitely a little bit of an imposter syndrome of like, oh shit, what if I got lucky? You know, like, <laughs> like what if I'm, what if I actually have no idea what I'm doing? And I just got really, really lucky with that first book. Uh, so it, that, that was, it was a very stressful time. Now, how did you deal with that in terms of the writing process, dealing with the those external pressures? Uh, it's for me, my my writing process. You know, my creativity is always proportional to how much I'm able to just shut off the external world. And so, um, I actually I actually rented a, an office at a co working space because even my apartment had so many distractions and you know people coming by and my wife and phone calls and stuff. So like, I just, I got away from everything. Um, and I, at the end of the day, I, I kind of, the challenge that I settled on for myself is I realized I'm like, okay, I, I'm never going to sell as many copies as the last book. I'm never going to write something that people like as much as the last book. Um, anything I do is going to feel disappointing. So what I need to do is I need to focus on what I can control. And that is, just write a better book. Just write a book that's better written, has better ideas, is more thoughtful. And if it doesn't live up, you know, it, no matter what you do, it's not going to live up to the first. But the only way that's going to be okay is if you feel like it's a better book. And mm -hmm. so that was kind of my challenge going into it is um, all I had to do was write something that I thought was better. And, and I, I feel like I accomplished that. And it probably kept me sane over the last two years. <laughs> now, at what point did you realize that the subtle art was taking off? I mean, I don't like, did you realize right when it came out that there was all of this hype? I don't know. I don't know exactly. I mean, you probably know, you know, the numbers and, and sure. how it kind of took off, but did it uh, kind of go quickly or was it a slow gradual process and then it quickly took off? How did, how did, how did that process go? Uh, it actually, it took a while. Um, it came out September 2016. So you were 32 it, at the time, correct? Yeah, I was 32. Okay. It debuted at number six on the New York Times list, um, which that was the goal, you know, going into the launch was like, just hit the New York Times list and everybody's going to be happy. Uh, did that, fell off a few weeks later. And it, it sold okay for a few months. And then it was around um december november december that actually the audiobook started to take off on audible um amazon picked it as its i think its favorite nonfiction book for that year um and then it's algorithm i guess the reviews or whatever the algorithm started recommending it to people and the audiobook just started going crazy and by like february march 2017 um the book came the hardcover came back and started just selling a bajillion copies and, I think, and uh and it, it didn't look back after that i think i even read a statistic so yeah over 12 million copies sold and i think correct me if i'm wrong i think it spent as of may 2020 179 weeks in the top 10 which is insane it's, I mean, yeah do you ever, like do you ever i mean do you, half years. <laughs> do you ever have you had a chance yet to kind of take a moment reflect and you know because i love also what i love about it is some of the moments that you talk about those initial struggles post college and for me you know ha having having you been having you gone to to be you knowing kind of you know where you lived i you know because that's that's where i am for most of the time um sure. do you ever have you know those moments where you can sit back enjoy exactly where you come from and that that struggle that you went through i mean you know as as everyone does i mean you in a different way yeah yeah it's Look, there were plenty of moments of gratitude and appreciation and stuff. I mean, the, the interesting thing about a book that, that's kind of, or about being an author, that's a little bit different than say like being a musician or a movie star or whatever. Um, you know, it's, if you're a musician, you go to the arena, you play to the huge crowds, you know, you fans are screaming in your face. Um, if you're, you know, you have a hit television show, you know, every time you walk outside your apartment, people are looking at you on the street, running up to you, asking for autographs. If you're an author, it hits it big. Your life is exactly the same <laughs> as it was before. It's all the only thing that changes. Way more emails. Yeah, way more emails. Um, the, but the only thing that like materially changes 
is that every six months, a, a gigantic check shows up in your bank account. And <laughs> you're like, okay, that like, where did that come from? Nobody recognizes you. Nobody like your life, your day-to-day life is, is, is pretty much unchanged. Um, so it's, it's nice in a way because you can kind of just, it, there was, it, well, I should say the other difference too, sorry to go back a little bit, um, is that it's books tend to have like a longevity to them, you know? So if, if a hit movie comes out, it's huge for a month or two and then it's over or an album that's huge for six months and then you tour and then it's over the book. It, it can go on for years. So it's like a very low level, slow celebration over a long period of time. And, and I think what's to that point, even more so with your book specifically, I think what's so um, what resonated with me and I think what resonated with probably the other 12 million people that read it is your book doesn't there's no expiration date on the ideas that are in it. Right. I mean, and there's no this is not just something that Americans go through. You know, some of the the not giving a fuck or giving too many fucks. Um, it's things that it's all about human nature. So for me, what I, I think not only is it brilliant from, you know, forever in terms of, you know, marketing, but in terms of just the ideas itself, these are things that people are always going to struggle with. They're always going to struggle with dating. They're always going to struggle with work. They're always going to struggle with being miserable. And so this is something for me that's a, that's a book that lives in perpetuity. And I don't know if that's something that you intended to do. Uh, I'm curious if that's something that, uh, you know, you wanted or, or you hoped for. Um, but I think that you did a, a, a brilliant job in, in executing that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, it's a nice side effect of being in kind of the niche or the genre that I'm in, you know, which is like the, the self-help or personal development genre. It's, it's like the, the concepts don't change. You know, it's the stuff in my book, it's, you know, people re- writing about it hundreds of years ago. Philosophers were talking about it in ancient Greece, you know, so it's not, uh, it doesn't, the advice doesn't change. It's just that every generation of people needs to learn it again or needs to be reminded of it every 10 or 20 years. Um, so it's that, so it wasn't intended, but I've been, I've always been aware that that's a nice side effect of kind of the genre that I exist in. Interestingly, everything is fucked is a little bit more timely. It's a little bit more focused on, uh, you know, it came out 20 pre pandemic. Um, but it, it was a little bit more focused on, uh, you know, why is everybody losing their mind online you know why why is everybody so miserable and depressed and anxious all the time why does everybody feel persecuted you know you look out the window everything's fucking great uh yet it's you go on twitter and it's like the apocalypse is happening every three days you know so it's it's a little bit more timely and it'll be interesting to see if interest in it falls off um a few years from now but um but yeah subtle art will probably hopefully you know be, be read for decades. Now, as an author who's writing in that self-help genre, as you just mentioned, I personally, I think what impressed me even more about this book and, and why I'm so happy to, to, be, to have you on my show is I, and I, I've talked to this with, uh, shout out to Josh over here. It's a, it's a very difficult, fine line to cross, in my opinion, when you're talking about self-help or self-care and not sound like you are the savior who has all the answers, which I think that you did a really good job of here, right? Um, how does an author like yourself write a self-help? And I think that's why it also had success because it wasn't like you were telling us the answers to life, which I think is such a turnoff as a reader if you're reading a book and you feel like, oh, this person thinks they know everything. Uh, how, did you, how do you approach a self-help book when you're writing it without trying to sound like the savior of the world? <laughs> You know, that, that's, I, I've been blogging for 11 years now, 12 years now. And, and I think a lot of that just comes from my blogging background. I, I've always hated that about the self-help industry. I've hated the whole guru model. You know, the guy stands on stage with all the answers. It's like, nobody has all the answers. Like every, first of all, we all have different answers for our own lives. Right. What works for me doesn't work for you and vice versa. Um, and second of all, it's, I feel like, when you, when you try to give people the answers to their problems, instead of making them figure out their own answers, you're robbing them of that opportunity to, to overcome their own challenges. And it, and that 
honestly is probably more important than the challenge itself um, is, is that feeling of somebody finding their own answer. Uh, so I, I've, you know, when I started blogging, I, I was very cognizant of that. I was like, I don't want to become, you know, another Brian Tracy or Tony Robbins or, or whatever. Um, I want to, I want to be speaking from another, like, I want to be another person in the crowd whose life is fucked up. And I want to be very honest about that, you know? And so that's, I think my, I just, my style of writing grew from that. Uh, I've always written that way. And I've always gone through a lot of effort to write that way. Uh, and so it, it's, it's just, it's become a natural part of my style. And where do you think if the subtle art hadn't taken off, what do, where do you think you'd be at right now? Probably doing the same thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, writing, writing on my website, writing books. Uh, it, it's funny. I, I did an interview like a year or two ago. Um, great group of guys. It was a group of guys out in San Francisco. It's like a fitness uh, company. And, and they, they have this like man cave and everything and they get me in there and we're like drinking whiskey and talking shop and like doing a podcast. And one of the first questions they asked me, they're, they're like, so, all right, man. So what'd you spend the money on? Like, what kind of car did you get? Like, what can I'm like, I didn't buy anything. <laughs> like, I'm like, they're like, come on, man. You, you had to have gone out and like done something for yourself. I was like, eh. Yeah, I bought a Nintendo Switch. <laughs> I played Zelda for about a month. You know, that was kind of like my pat on the back for myself. But like, my life is 98% the, the same as it was. Um, and for me, that that's very, um, it's, it's almost uh, a relieving in a way. Because you, you kind of, I think before, before you experience a lot of worldly success, you, you like to tell yourself like, oh, I, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't be different, you know, but if there's always that thought in the back of your head that you could become a total prick and like go buy a, five Lamborghinis. And, and I didn't do that. And I didn't, I don't really feel any different. And so to me, that was very relieving. It, it shows me that I, I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing it for the right reasons. How was it, was it a conscious effort to stay as, you know similar the same person you were i mean did it was that something that kind of came naturally to you at, at the time honestly it, <laughs> I, it i didn't have to think about it like i literally didn't want to do anything else um and it's funny too because my wife and i we even tried we're like <laughs> like you know we should do like a really fancy trip to like paris or something you know and then we went and did it and it was like okay, well, that was fun for a few days, but it's like, we don't really need to do that again. And, you know, there were a few things like that where we, we kind of tried it out. Um, I, I like, I went through this phase a couple years ago where I, I bought like all this super expensive, like audio equipment. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I have the money. I'm going to buy like $2,000 headphones. And, you know, I used them for three months and I'm like, why did I do this? I don't need this. <laughs> So then I'm also curious, I, I kind of want to take you back to your to your early blogging days. Um, for people out there that aren't more familiar with with your story, where was this uh, desire to blog? And I know in the in the earlier parts, it was mostly about dating, correct? Or in that yeah. kind of category. Um, mm -hmm. Where did where did that inspiration come from? So going back to my BU days, uh, I graduated in 07. What school were you at, by the way? Uh, CAS. Okay. Oh, SMG originally. So I, I did like a dual major SMG and CA, but I finished in CAS. Uh, but I graduated, I graduated into the crash of 08. So there's like just no jobs, <laughs> no jobs, broke, living off Comav um, on my friend's futon and like literally no jobs. And I, I had done like a little bit of web development and stuff um, in school you know, some freelance work and whatnot. So I started, I picked that back up. And back then, like blogs were very new. They were kind of all the, like the way podcasts were four or five years ago, right. um, you know, blogs, that's what blogs were like 2007, eight, nine, 10. Um, so everybody was starting a blog. It's, and it's just like the thing to do. 
Uh, and so a friend of mine kind of talked me in the starting one just for the hell of it and started writing about my life a little bit and, you know, kind of messing around here and there. And, and then I, I, I read at the time I read a book called four hour workweek by Tim Ferriss. Um, and the whole book was about how you can basically build, uh, build like a small business online that's automated. Um, and it can, you know, make money while you sleep and all this sort of, sorts of things. And, um, so I was like, well, hell, I know how to make websites. So maybe I should do that. And so I started creating, uh, different websites to sell stuff. And, uh, it, spoiler alert that I never work four hours in a week. Like it's more like you work 80 hours a week for two years and then you get to work for four hours a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, started building websites and, it, it back then it's, you know, if you wanted to get traffic, you had to blog. So I started blogging for all these different web businesses that I was trying to create. And the one that stuck was uh, dating relationship advice. And it just, I seemed to have a knack for it. I was a young, single 24, 25 year old dating uh, actively at the time. So I had plenty of material to write about. And um, it just started snowballing from there. Why do you think that kind of genre resonates mo- with people and, and they seek out that kind of advice per se, or, um, you know, they want to hear from, from someone like yourself. Well, it, w- it was an interesting time back then because it was the first time, you know, dating advice historically had been a very, uh, well, first of all, there was only, it was only women. And like, if you had gone to a dating advice section of a bookstore in like 1999, it would have been, every single book would have been how to get a guy to marry you. Like it was, it was all written for like 30 year old women who were desperate to get married. And something interesting happened in the mid two thousands, which was people on the internet started congregating in forums. Men started congregating in forums and they started saying like, what can we do to have a better dating life? You know, it's like it, it, it was, it stopped being like a shameful thing to talk about because you could be anonymous online and talk about it. Uh, so there, it was this huge demand um, at that time, especially among my generation. You know, I was like being a 23-year-old who like had no clue how to like get a girl to like him. You just start Googling that stuff and you start finding things and it and it's fascinating. You start learning about psychology and, and um, all sorts of things. And so I kind of fell into that and I, I had read a bunch of books about it. I had been reading a bunch of blogs about it. And so I started blogging about it. And it was at the time, it was a very new and exciting thing. Um, Whereas I feel like now it's, you know, it's just like another thing people read about. Has your perspective or your, um, uh, let's, let's say your, your ability to write with regards to uh, either the dating or now married, um, you know, content section, being a married man now, how does that change your, your writing process or, you know, what you are going to write about with regards to that kind of specific romantic um, genre? I, I find that like 90% of it, it, that hasn't really changed. It's still applicable. You know, human psychology is human psychology where attraction is attraction. It's things don't really change over time. The only area that I really kind of throw up my hands and have no idea what to do with is, uh, is dating apps. You know, a lot of times I get emails about Tinder and Bumble and all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, I, this, this is after my time. You're on your own here. <laughs> is there a, because there's one thing that I, I think I've been just listening to so many of your different interviews over the past couple of days. So I've had, I've had your voice in my head, but there's one thing that, that really stood out that I thought was so, um, in, in reality, uh, an act of kindness or charitable, however you want to say it, where you said, I think that um, you use, I think it's on Mondays, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is when you uh, take some time to respond to all the emails you get. And I think that that's a really, uh, a really nice thing just because, you know, you see a lot of people who get either fame or success or money, whatever, and, you know, they, they aren't maybe as in touch with uh, the rest of society and they don't, they would never take three or four hours of their day to respond to, you know, random emails, but you do. And I was wondering if there's ever, there's a maybe one or two uh, emails that have stuck out to you over the years um, 
and I'm sure you get a whole host of crazy different questions. <laughs> um, but you know what that what first of all what that process is like of receiving so many emails and getting back to them, and if that's something that you enjoy. And secondly, of course, if there is you know maybe one or two that have stood out over the years that um, yeah. resonated. It's a good question. That is something I don't get asked very often. Uh, so you found something that I, I haven't talked about very much. Um, it's a very good question. It's funny. So I'll, I'll speak to kind of the general experience first, and then, and then I'll, I'll kind of get into some specific examples, but I've, I've always felt very strongly that I want to, it comes back to that kind of anti-guru thing. Like I, I want to keep a direct line to my readers and understand what's going on in their lives and understand like who they are. Um, so I've always made it a point. I used to read up until three, four years ago, I would read, uh, I would read everything. Um, and I would respond to as much as I could since subtle art took off it, you know, the quantity has gotten to the point where it's, um, my assistant kind of screens them down and, and, I probably end up getting through anywhere from a quarter to half of them on a good week. Um, but it's, I mean, the emails, it's literally from age, from 10 year olds to 90 year olds, men, women, um, every country around the world. Uh, and it's, it's funny too, because it, sometimes I'm amused by what people think I'm going to have advice for, <laughs> you know, um, I've gotten emails from, from, you know, young women in India or the middle East who their parents are marrying them off to some guy they've never met. And they're like, I don't, I want to run away, but I don't know what to do. What should I do? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like you're asking a rich white guy in America you know like what the hell do I am I going to know about this but it, it's what's interesting you know kind of a common thread that I see pop up a lot is is that generally it tends to be stuff in people's life that they don't feel like they can talk about it to anybody else but they need to talk, they need to share it with somebody or at least ask the question. And, um, and I, and I often end up being that outlet. Like I make myself very available to my readers. I, I put in my newsletters, you can reply to this email. I will see it. Um, and, and so what I've kind of discovered over the years is that actually a lot of the value that people get from emailing me isn't even my response. It's just the fact that they are typing this mm -hmm. up to another human being and they know it's going to be read by that human being um, because it's, you know, emails like that. Like I respond to these women and I'm like, I have no idea, but I'm really sorry you're going through that. And it's even that alone, you know, they, 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 they're often very grateful for that. Um, the funny thing about, I mean, at this point, I would say I've read people's, I've read tens of thousands of life problems, you know, tens of thousands of people have sent me their personal issues and I've read through them and talked to them about it. Um, in a way it's, I don't get the, the depth of like a therapist relationship with my readers, but I feel like I have a very unique experience in terms of quantity. You know, it's like a therapist will work with maybe a few hundred people throughout their career. Um, I'm, I'm, communicating with tens of thousands of people. And so the most incredible thing is you just realize that it, it, there are really only like eight or nine problems that everybody has over and over and over again. And even the more incredible thing is that everybody thinks that their problem is unique to them. Like they don't think anybody else understands what they're going through. And I'm like, no, I, you're like the fourth email today that has said this. <laughs> Uh, so it, it's just, it's such a fascinating vantage point. Um, in terms of, I guess, how I actually go about talking to people or, or, or helping people, you know, I, I'm always very up for one thing that I, I try to hold on to is, is if I don't, if I don't know how to help somebody, I don't try to help them. Um, I'm always very upfront with that. Um, either I won't respond to them or I, I will reply to them. I say, I have no idea, but I'm sorry you're going through this. Um, 
Other times, like I try to communicate my level of uncertainty. So I get a lot of people who send me relationship questions, like they're upset at their partner or they're upset at their ex and they tell their whole sob story. But the problem is, is, is I'm not hearing the other person's story, you know, and you know, the other person's stories could be completely different. So I don't, I don't usually get in the middle of that. I always reply to the person. I'm like, okay, well, based on what you're telling me, this, this, and this sound true, but I'm only hearing your side. So I can't say that for sure. Um, and then other times it's, it's, I, I feel pretty confident in what I'm answering, you know? So just to give an example, I'd say, um, a couple times a month, I get emails from, from women, not always women, usually women, sometimes it's men, but usually women uh, who are being physically abused. And it's like, in situations like that, it's like 100% get the fuck out of there, find a way out, find a family member, something, you know, it, it, there, are, there are situations where I'm 100% confident in what to say. And so there's this whole spectrum of like, I have no fucking idea what to say to, I know exactly what the answer is here. And, and I try to traverse that and I try to be very transparent of like where on that spectrum I am when I'm answering somebody. In terms of like most crazy stuff I've heard. Um, I mean, there, there's some dark shit that I get in my inbox. And it, you know, there was a guy recently who his brother-in-law murdered his sister and now he was taking care of the kid. Like, so the husband murdered the wife, went to jail, and then the uncle was taking care of the, like, basically had to adopt the kids. Right. And the uncle emailed me and he's like, I'm lost, you know? And, and it's, it's heavy stuff. Um, you know, a number of people email me, they're suicidal. Um, I direct them to, to suicide hotlines and resources online. Um, you also just get weird stuff. You get, you get like conspiracy theorists a lot, people who think that like God is talking to them or that God is talking to me or that, you know, there's, I, I'm, there's this whole worldwide conspiracy, especially during the pandemic, I'm getting lots of emails about the conspiracy theory behind the vaccines and, uh, the governments are taking over and all this stuff. And, and then as soon as I don't agree with the person, they, they're like, you're in on it too. They're paying you to say this. And I'm like, what, what the fuck? Um, so it, it's, it's just this whole, you get the whole swath of humanity. And uh, it, it's pretty incredible. And it, it's, um, it's, it's a very I'm a unique and privileged uh, place for me to be. Do you feel that whether or not you have the answer to, to someone's issues, do you now feel because of the position that you're in that you are in a way responsible or um, or there's more of a pressure on you to, to have an answer? Um, no, I, I'm one thing I'm always very upfront with with my readers is, is kind of what I said earlier is that is I don't have all the answers or I don't necessarily have the answers for everybody. Um, and I write that in my work frequently. It's it's on my site, um, and and I say it explicitly in a lot of these emails. You know, I will start the email with, "This might not be right for you, but you wanted my opinion, so here it is." You know, um, and I just think it's very important to set that context because I think given my popularity and and how much people love my book and everything. Um, it is easy for them to kind of get this false idea that whatever I say is going to be right. And, and I, I need to fight against that both for their sake, but also my own. <laughs> and now we're just going to take a quick break to talk to you about my longtime sponsor in us wellness meats. Us wellness meats has over 400 all natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. All of their beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. 
They specialize in every single diet under the sun and have hundreds of paleo, keto, whole 30, sugar-free, and AIP-friendly options. All of their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles, so you will never have any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. They ship anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. Go to uswellnessmeats.com today and when you use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, you'll receive 15% off store-wide savings. Again, go to uswellnessmeats.com, use that promo code PODCAST, and you'll get 15% off of every single order. Go check it out today. Now let's get back into it. Now I have a separate question. What would uh what would a perhaps a, a 36-year-old Mark Manson tell that 23 or 24 year old living on com Ave? <laughs> um it's funny i've thought about this before um i actually wrote a, a piece a few years ago it was kind of it was called a letter to my 18 year old self you know my my 23 year old mark i think he was all right i wouldn't change a whole lot the only thing i would tell 23 year old mark was to not be such a selfish dick sometimes, you know, like I, my problem, when I look back at my, myself 12, 13 years ago, um, I, I, I could, I had a tendency to be, uh, to be a little bit self-absorbed and to not, um, just to be a little bit too selfish. And, and I, you know, I would just tell him like, Hey man, chill out. Like, can be okay. <laughs> well, why were you self? Why were you selfish or self-absorbed? Do you think? Uh, I think I was insecure. I was in. I was insecure, uh, particularly around, particularly like socially insecure, mm. and so I overcompensated in a lot of ways. I I I, uh, I tried too hard, in in some ways, and so, and in the process of trying too hard, um, I was insensitive towards people. Um, so that, that's really the only thing that I think I, because like I was clueless in a lot of other ways, but I was, those were like good ways. You know, it was like, I had no idea what I was doing when I started my business, but that was part of it. That was good. Like I needed to figure that out. It, it's, th- this was a cluelessness that it was like, you know, it didn't need to be that way. When did you feel like you became less self-absorbed or less selfish, dickish Mark Manson? <laughs> dickish Mark Manson. Um, I think I, I think it happened gradually throughout my twenties, but the, actually the real turning point was meeting my wife. Um, something about her humbled me Mm. in a lot of ways. When did you guys meet? Um, 2012. So I was 27. Um, and it's funny too. It's actually, this is the first time I've thought about this, but, uh, it's kind of ironic because, because my, I had a mentality in my twenties, I had a mentality that I think a lot of young men have, which is, which is this idea that like, um, like we kind of see, see women and relationships as like something to be achieved. You know, it's like, it's like a trophy, you know, it's like, I'm going to get like the hottest, most badass girlfriend. And we, we treat it as if it's like a football game or something. And, uh, and I, I had a tendency to do that when I was young. And it, it was funny because it, I think my mentality back then was like, once I found my dream girl, I was going to be the fucking man. And like, everybody's going to respect me and all this shit. And the complete opposite happened when I met her is when I met her, I'm like, wow, none of this matters. None of this matters. I am so full of it. (laughs) And it was just, it was freeing. It was, it was such a liberating experience. I, I love that story. And I also, you know, it's funny too. It just, it just reminded me as well, even in the past, I think in the past couple of weeks, um, just talking about, you know, hearing you talk about your transition from being 23 to 27 to 35. Um, I've recommended this book to three different friends. I was actually, I was on a, last night I FaceTimed a friend for uh, two or three hours and she was talking about a whole host of things. And I, I told her for Christmas, I'm going to buy her um, the subtle art. But I think what's also, um, when I think about why it resonated with me, is I think that every, and to people listening out there, this is the perfect book, not only for people who are 
you know, 35, 40, but really for 20 year olds in particular, I think, because I think that learning to um, allocate your fucks in the right in the right places, um, learning, you know, a lot of the different things that you talk about, uh, which problems you want to have are really things that, you know, I'm grateful that I that I know or that I that I read about at 20 years old. Um, and I think that for people out there, um, I don't I'm curious as to to why you think the book had success. I think there are a lot of reasons. Um, but I will say really quick that that what you just said resonates with me. I mean, generally my writing, the biggest inspiration for my writing is solving the problems that I, I just had recently, you know? And so subtle art, pretty much all of the life lessons in subtle art was, it was stuff that I figured out in that, you know, 27 to 30 range. Like those, those were all kind of the lessons that I had to learn the hard way or that I came to the conclusions of. And, and they're all things that I wish I knew, you know, when I was 22, 23. Um, so that, that feels very appropriate to me. In terms of like why it's successful, I, I, I just think, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think some of them were within my control, some were not, some I just got lucky. Um, so, I mean, the title's great, obviously. Um, I think Harper did a great job with the cover. Um, obviously, I think the book is great, but I, I think it, it hit a nerve at this moment in our culture. Um, I think it's, there is a general sense these last five years or so, like everybody is becoming more anxious and nobody seems to really know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the book very openly addresses that. I think it's a much needed and refreshing response to the self-help industry. I think there are a lot of people like me out there who they want that self-help material. They want that, that life advice, but they don't want all the, like, the cheesy bullshit that comes along with it. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it was a confluence of things. Like it, it's, it was the right book at the right time. I think the things that I controlled, I did a great job of. And the things I didn't control, I got very lucky with. I think what's also interesting, so for me, actually, the way I was introduced to this, I don't think I, I mentioned this, was I was talking, I was talking to my therapist and I said, I feel like I'm, I'm, I looked at my, I had looked at my screen time that morning. And, you know, and that's, I think, something that, that you've talked about in other interviews, but the amount of uh, time that I was spending on social media or just not, productively or efficiently was it hit kind of a nerve and so I told her I said hey I think I really need to start reading again because what I think this generation does is we don't read anymore I think we read for school and that's about it then it's just you know scroll 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 talk to your friends hang out um and so she so that's when she had recommended this book and I think the other thing that she had said about it she was like you're gonna love the way he talks or the way he writes um and I think that she was right. So shout out to her. Um, but also, I think my, my question then to you is, um, and also just very quickly, for people who are wondering more about the book, and I think why it also resonated if I had to, to give another uh, idea is also because it's such an easy read, um, especially for, you know, I'm honest, I told Josh, I'm, I'm ashamed of how little I read. And this is really like my my first book into the return of the reading world. So I'm ha- So thank you for that. But because it's an easy read, and because it's so um, it's written as if we're having a conversation. And I think that that's what, what resonated too. And I don't know if that's something that I'm sure you intended to do that. Um, but where was the inspiration to have it be something where I'm going to drop a lot of fucks and shits and, you know, curse words and just, you know, the way that you might talk to to a friend at a dinner table. Yeah. That, that again, that comes from the blogging background and it's, blogging in general, especially back then, it's a little more formal now, but back then it, it really was, people would blog in a way that they, they were writing an email to a friend. And I always, I it always just felt natural and comfort to, comfortable to me to write the way I talk. Like I never saw any reason to like dress it up and make it flowery and poetic or whatever. Uh, and so I just, again, I always wrote that way. And it's interesting because I think People, I think this is a new thing kind of starting with 
my generation, the millennial generation, and, and, and it's extending down into your generation as well, is that it, but like the older generations don't get that. The older generations still have this mindset of like, well, it's a book, so it needs to be pretty and it needs to sound nice and it needs to have a thesis and it has to like have arguments. And, um, and so I've, I've actually found that uh, kind of the, the traditional media world of like journalism and New York Times and Washington Post and stuff like that, like they don't really know what to do with my books. Like they don't cover them. They don't talk about them. Um, despite the fact that they've sold like five times more than anything else that they cover. Uh, you know, it's, so it's, it's, it's something that I think feels very natural and normal to young people. You know, we, we grew up with the internet. We grew up writing exactly how we talk. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas the older generations didn't grow up that way. And so it's very alienating to them. And I think you're right in that perfect mix. Because I think you you have the wisdom of someone who understands those older generations, but also you are part of, you understand my generation equally. Um, and I think, I guess more, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, do you have post, well, I guess we're still in the pandemic, um, but is there something perhaps, I mean, have you, have you, uh, generated new ideas that from your quarantine pandemic experience that you feel like one day might be in a in a future book have you are there any noticings about um the way maybe our culture has shifted or the ways in which humans have uh, interacted or reacted to the pandemic that have uh stifled you um i I wouldn't say there's a much new information or, or insights that i've gleaned from the pandemic I definitely feel reaffirmed. <laughs> I mean, well, one of my kind of core beliefs is is just that people suck and are very irrational, you know? And it's like, that's, I've, I've always kind of led with that in my work. I'm like, look, this idea that you're ever going to stop being a fuck up, like, it's just not, get over that. That's not going to happen. Like, we're, we're just, we're monkeys with screens. And, uh, and the pandemic has really reaffirmed that. Like it's, it's amazing how, uh, how much of a shit show it is. Despite all this information we have, all the science that we have, like all the amazing communication that we have, it's just as much of a shit show. And, and I'll say like, I've been using this year to, to, to read a lot, like to kind of just, if I'm going to be home all day, I might as well just be plowing through books. And, uh, and I actually went out and bought a, a couple books about previous pandemics. So like the 1918 pandemic and plagues from the middle ages and things like that. And it's, people did the exact same shit. It was like all the stuff that we're doing is exactly what they did a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. And it's just, it's been, I guess kind of the big insight for me in 2020 is, is I use this year to like go back and read a lot of history. Mm. And, and when you read history, you realize it's like, none of this is new. Like we just, we keep doing the same shit over and over and over again. And, and, but it's, you know, enough generations have passed that we were, we delude ourselves into thinking that like, oh, this is a, this is the, this is the one unique moment in history. Um, But yeah, people don't change. And so, um, I guess that's a that's a roundabout way of answering your question, but it, it's been an interesting experience. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. And I think, um, you know, even in thinking uh, about this book as well, um, and I think I see a lot of kids my age um, that their insecurities or their, um, the you know, the places where they are putting their fucks in, if you will, if we're going by the book, um, have been amplified through the pandemic. Um, and, you know, exacerbated and, and worsened. And I, this is one of the conversations I've had with, with a couple of different friends and why I recommended this book, um, you know, about how to kind of manage those and find the problems that you want to have, right? I guess coming from you really quickly, um, for the kid out there or the 30-year-old or 50-year-old who feels like they um, are struggling with uh, allocating, you know, either... Uh, the fucks that they have to give in the right places or, um, you know, 
aren't really sure of what they value, how do you suggest they at least uh, consider reshaping, uh, you know, approaching that, approaching that issue, if you will? Sure. Well, I, I think the pandemic has been very, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It kind of amplifies who people are because what the pandemic has done is it's removed all external pressures. You know, it's, you don't have anywhere to go. You don't have people expect like saying this or expecting that, like you're sitting at home by yourself. So it's whoever you are or whatever you actually care about, that's going to get amplified during this period. And I think people have, have noticed that about themselves, both in positive and negative ways. So um, people with negative tendencies, um, you know, maybe addictive tendencies or, or depressive tendencies. Now they, they no longer have that external stuff kind of mediating it or like buffering those tendencies. Similarly, people with, with some positive tendencies um, no longer have the distractions or the things getting in the way. Uh, so it's the pandemic on its own, or I guess the kind of the social isolation on its own, it's, it's going to tend to amplify people for who they are. And, um, and I, I wrote on my newsletter when, when this whole thing started, as I said, like, you know, 2020, I said two things, one, 2020 is going to suck. So like, get ready. <laughs> it's going to be, this is back when every, that, this is back when everybody thought that, you know, it was going to, this thing was going to last a month. I'm like, no, no, no. 2020 is gone. Like this is, this is going to like buckle up. It's, it's safe to say you suck. were right. Safe to yeah. say you were right. <laughs> it's going to suck for a long time. But two, like, this is an opportunity because it's, it's an opportunity because it, it is, it's going to put a magnifying glass on what you're giving a fuck about. Like, it's going to be impossible to avoid who you are or what you care about in your life. And so use this as an opportunity to like ask these questions of like, what do I need in my life? Who's important? Who's worth seeing, right? Who's worth risk getting COVID? You know, I'll, I'll risk it to go see this person. I'm not going to risk it to see that person. <laughs> like it shows you a lot of things that are true about your life that maybe you, you hadn't considered before. And so I, I kind of encouraged my readers to, to use this as a tool, as like an opportunity to kind of do these reflective exercises um, and come to terms with them. And so, you know, to the people out there hearing this, uh, I would say, look back on this year um, and just be like brutally honest with yourself. Like whatever you did with your time this year, that is an accurate reflection of who you are and what you give a fuck about. And, you know, there's probably going to be things that don't feel good to admit that. And there's probably going to be things that do feel good to admit that, you know, and make note of those things uh, because it's the things that you did or this year that you don't like admitting that that's who you are. Like, those are the things that you need to, to, to focus on and think about um, and come to terms with. I have two last questions to before we wrap things up. My first is if I told a 10-year-old Mark Manson that he would write a book one day named The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, what would he have said to me? Uh, cool. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if 10-year-old Mark... Maybe 15. 15 would be surprised. Would be surprised. 15-year-old um, Mark wanted to be a musician... And 15-year-old Mark did not think he was a good writer, so. Well, now, final question. Do you ever think about um, your legacy? Do you ever think about how, I mean, you're, you're young, hopefully many more years of healthy, happy life. Um, but you've already left, obviously, a, a massive uh, print on, on, on the world. But do you ever think about, I mean, you know, there's so much more that I know you're going to do, uh, how you hope to be remembered as, a, as perhaps as a man, as an author, um, as someone as people that people look to for advice and, um, you know, as now rea the reality is a, a figure, a public figure. Yeah, all the time. And it's, it's something that I talk about at the end of Subtle Art. Uh, I encourage people to do it. You know, it's for a couple reasons. One is that thinking about the meaningful, thinking about what the meaning of your actions are after you're dead is a nice way to put in the perspective 
whether they're actually meaningful or not. You know, it's, um, you know, maybe that party on Friday night isn't that important, you know, when you think of it in those terms. Uh, but the other thing is, I, I almost see it as, I almost see asking that question of legacy consistently and repeated, repeatedly, uh, aside from just being a very useful way to help me focus on meaningful things, it's also like a kind of insurance because um, it's, you never know what's gonna happen. Uh, one thing that happened, you know, I think one thing that is a little bit unique about my life is between the ages of, I'd say 12 and 22, um, I was close to a number of people who died unexpectedly. And, and, you know, I had three of my four grandparents died. Um, a kid that I went to school with, uh, got cancer in ninth grade. Another kid died in a car accident in 10th grade. Um, another kid died in a burning house in 12th grade. And then my friend, Josh, who I wrote about, um, died at, drowned at a party that I was at. So it was like my entire adolescence, it was just like, boom, boom, boom. All these kids that I knew were dying. And it was kind of a freak coincidence. Like it's not, that's, I don't think that's very typical. Um, but it, it made me very aware of my mortality, I think at mm. an age earlier than most people. And, um, and I, I don't, I think I've benefited from that. And I don't think it's ever too early to start asking those questions because it's, I mean, it, you never know. I mean, you could wake up and I mean, it's my wife, a friend of my wife, her husband, just out of, out of nowhere, healthy 40 year old, just out of nowhere, had a heart attack and died like maybe a year ago, you know? So it's like stuff like that. You, you really have no idea. And so if you're asking yourself consistently, you know, what is my legacy? What do I want to be remembered for? What are, what actions am I taking in my life um, that I want to be remembered for after I die? Even if you're 20, it's, it's, it's a useful exercise, uh, both in terms of decision-making, but also it's, you know, you never know what's going to happen to you. And so you, you always want to be able to say, you know, I used my time well. So what do you want to be remembered for? Um, I just want to be remembered for, uh, promoting a, a greater culture, a better culture around mental health and, uh, happiness. I, I feel like Western culture in general, but, but particularly American culture has a very like warped and kind of fucked up view of mental health and happiness. And, um, I'm trying to kind of be like the antidote to that. Beautiful. People can follow you on Instagram at Mark Manson, Twitter at I am Mark Manson. Obviously, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And now everything is fucked. A book about hope. And then also markmanson.net, I believe, is where they can subscribe to your um, there's a subscription. I think I think it's like what two thirds of the website is free. And then um, for a couple dollars, people can can get extra content uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Beautiful. Yep. There's a there's a membership on the website and then there's a free newsletter every Monday. Uh, called Mindfuck Monday, um, <laughs> where I, I send it, it's it's free. I send out three ideas every Monday morning to help people start the week off well. Um, so yeah, markmanson.net. Mark, it was uh, truly a pleasure and an honor to to have you on my show. It really, uh, I, I just first got to thank you just for writing a book like this um, because I think for for me um, this has really helped me in so many ways that I never thought it would. Um, and I, I, I thank my therapist for introducing me to it. And I thank you for writing it. Um, because I think that every 20 year old, any really anyone out there, but anyone from 15 to like 22, 23 could really benefit from a lot of the things that are written here. And the way that you write it makes it so much more, um, endearing and warm and, uh, makes it really resonate more than if it was written all fluffy and beautiful and uh, stuff like that. So I thank you for that. I thank you for the time. And uh, I hope one day if you're, if you're ever in Brooklyn, New York, um, to have you in studio, but uh, truly a pleasure and an honor. Awesome, man. Thanks, dude. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thank you so much.